Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to ask a favor. I want you to check out Joe Trippy's podcast, That Trippy Show. You can find it wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Add that to your Lincoln Project listening. That Trippy Show, twice a week, wherever you find podcasts. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by comedian, Peloton enthusiast, and co-host of not one, but two LPTV shows, We're Speaking with Lisa Sinekel, as well as The Game We're In with Trig Vielsen. Maya, long time no see, welcome back. Reed, I'm so glad to be back. I've got a lot to say. <laughs> and God bless it. So like, here we are, Maya, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it is, as we're recording this, it is the doldrums, the horse latitudes of August, but it never seems, at least from my world, it's never that way, right? I've never had in August these last two weeks, like, you know, in France, they go on holiday, in Europe, the city's empty out. I always find myself to be busier, you know, in the last two weeks of August than I ever am any other time. And I don't know if that's because so many people are trying to get stuff done before school starts or Labor Day or whatever it is, but certainly we're not in a quiet time now. And so I think as we're looking forward to September here in the stretch run of the election, you know, we wanted to take some questions from social media, emails, town halls, those who have started emailing us at podcast at lincolnproject.us. Thank you. Some of your questions are in here. So please don't be shy about asking. But Maya, welcome, welcome, welcome. What is happening? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to say about that end of summer season, this August season, I feel like Donald Trump stole our August from us. I was on pace to get everything done for back to school shopping, getting my head right for the fall, getting my head right for the midterms. And then, boom, that news dropped about the DOJ investigation. And it kind of like tore my entire week asunder. And suddenly all of my to do lists went out the door. And it was like, what it's happening? Is it finally happening? And so I think that's what happened to this particular summer, at least for me. And that's a helpful segue because that's going to be the subject of our first question. But let me just say this, whether or not it was while he was running for office, while he was president, or since he's left office involuntarily, you can always count on Trump to fuck things up. You can always count on it. And if and when he decides to run for president again, as George Conway said on this show a few weeks ago, whether or not he wins the Republican nomination, whether or not he wins the presidency, the damage he will inflict on the country in the process, we don't have an idea of yet, but it will be bad. And so, Maya, our first question here. Jeffrey Donahue asks, an FBI search, 300 documents, Espionage Act, scrambling to ID the rat. Even if you take January 6th out of it, which nobody should ever do, Trump's criminality makes Nixon look like a Boy Scout. I think this documents thing is going to be huge, and it's only a matter of time. Will it amount to anything? So, Maya, I think this is one where I think it will amount to something, and it is 
the continuing and growing laundry list of Trump's criminality that, let's be clear, probably started well before he ever decided to make politics his profession, but it's now taken to a new level. But as we've heard from increasing reporting from places like the New York Times and the Washington Post and others, the level of classification for so many of these documents, and 300 documents is a lot, are what are called special access programs, secure compartmented information. And what it means, Maya, is that these are documents that should only be viewed in a place like the Oval Office, which is probably as secure a spot as you're ever going to be. And if you're not in the Oval Office, the room that you'd sit in, Maya, is basically the equivalent of a bank vault, is literally like sitting inside a bank vault. These documents go in, this door goes behind you, you review them, and then it goes back in a folder and somebody who's qualified to handle them puts it back in whatever Superman safe they pulled them out of in the first place. If it's an electronic document, it's on a computer system that is completely and totally disconnected from the outside world, right? It doesn't have an internet connection. Think about like an old 1980s PC, like there was no plug in the back. And so this is going to get bigger. And I think you can see that it is starting to consume a lot of his fellow Republicans because they're in that sort of can't live with him, can't live without him space, which is all of the elites loathe him. The big time donors are totally over him. Mitch McConnell hates him with the fury of a thousand sons. The problem is, is that the voters still love him. They're his voters and they're not anyone else's voters until he decides to move off the stage. You know, first of all, when you call it a vault, Superman's vault, like I just picture how absolutely terrifying it is that Trump had access to documents like that in the first place, let alone after leaving office, because, you know, he's there with his phone taking pictures like it's mind boggling to me that this is even a question of whether there'll be accountability. And I think, you know, to answer Jeffrey's question, will it amount to anything? As you pointed out, Reed, it already has. People are stepping away from him because the stench that he is emitting is such that they know if they don't step away from him in some form or fashion, they're eventually going to get consumed by it. Like we had Dr. Bandy Exley on We're Speaking, and she talks about the fact that in order to have a functioning society, there absolutely has to be accountability. Why? Because that's what underscores the rule of law. And that's for everybody, for children, for, you know, adults. When they see somebody in that position take advantage of their position to wield power, to stay in power, that then tells everybody else, hey, you can do that too. And since it is back to school time, I think it's really important to note that we need leaders that are role models, not leaders like Donald Trump. Well, and it's even more fundamental than that, which is the idea of a democracy, right, of a representative government is we, the people, collectively and individually say, we are going to hand you this power, the power to govern at our discretion. But the accountability there and for that trade should be even more acute because we have given this power to you. It's not yours. It's on loan from the American people or from the citizens of a democracy. And I think that that's what you see is that, you know, Trump, like Richard Nixon with Garrett Graff on one of our recent episodes, thinks these are his documents. He thought it was his house. He thought it was his airplane. He thinks it's his country. He thinks that we're his people, right, whether we agree with them or not. And it's not. The government 
of the United States is of, by, and for the American people. And I think that's the thing that sometimes we speak in a lot of hyperbole and very big words. But the truth is, is that until and unless we, the people, are going to demand that our government hold accountable those who have violated the public trust, like Trump has innumerable times and probably does to this day, as he goes out and says crazy things about, these were my documents, I declassified them. Like, we all know it's lies. And truth is, my is that he's so reflective when I say this. He is not a reflective person. But his comments are so reflective is that when he says, I declassified these documents, you know the reality is that he did not. When he said, I offered to give these back, you know that he did not, right? Like, that's how he operates. So whatever comes out of his mouth, the opposite is the truth. It's really not a complicated equation. Yeah, he's such a transparent and weak human that the fact that the GOP couldn't figure that out and keep him from joining their ranks, the fact that they couldn't outsmart somebody who was so clearly transparent, I think they probably underestimated how people would be willing to latch on to his criminality and crave it, especially in a time where they feel that they're losing power. And they're all in on it now. They've all crossed the Rubicon with him. There's no such thing, even in the operative class of Washington, D.C., there's no such thing as an establishment Republican anymore. You're either a Republican, which means you're in with Trump and Cruz and Hawley and all of them, or you're not, or functionally not. The question I truly have is, do they think, like, do the Mitch McConnells of the world, do they think they're just going to outlast him? Does the Mitt Romneys of the world think that it's their responsibility, somehow their duty to the old Republican guard to stay there and feel like they're going to transform it from the inside still? Well, I think the first way you described it, I think, is probably the best one, which is there is this almost comically 2015 thinking that when and if Trump leaves the stage, that somehow this will all go back to normal. Now, I do believe that Trump is the alpha and omega of the MAGA movement today. And if he goes, it will not disappear. It might dissipate a little bit, and it definitely will splinter as people go looking for the next person they believe to be the true tribune of the movement. But that in and of itself is an opportunity for us and pro-democracy forces to retake some political territory while they're fighting with each other. And those fights will beget more and more insanity if such a thing is possible. But Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, they're just trying to ride the tiger. McConnell thought he's smarter, thought I can just make all this work. And what's happened? He got exactly the crop of U.S. Senate nominees that he did not want. He didn't want Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. He wanted McCormick. He didn't want Herschel Walker in Georgia. He literally wanted any other living, breathing human being in the state that was qualified for the position. He got Blake Masters in Arizona when he probably wanted Mark Burnovich, the attorney general. In Nevada, he got Adam Laxalt you know, who's like a three-time loser and a weirdo to begin with. You know, he's got to defend Ron Johnson. Not to mention, just as an aside, Senate Republicans, as we're recording this, it came out, Maya, have spent $127 million this cycle so far and have nothing but bad polling results to show for it because they're now moving into places like Washington State against Patty Murray, who is not going to lose and Colorado against a Michael Bennett, who is not going to lose. In Wisconsin, you've got Ron Johnson neck and neck with Mandela Barnes, who subscribes to the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. And J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan in Ohio 
Ohio, a red state, neck and neck. Val Demings, Marco Rubio, neck and neck in Florida. So the problem is, is they're running out of time and running short of money and running short of places to put it. And this is what I think happens when people like McConnell and McCarthy, and maybe even Romney, although I think Romney's a different case, truly believe money can win these things. And in some cases it can, but fundamentally misunderstand that you can either have a solid governing majority or the crazy, but you can't have both, at least not at this moment. And while all of those arrows, I think, on the Senate side for Democrats are pointing up, let me also say we should not take anything for granted, right? Like if you're 10 points up, run like you're 10 points down. If you're five points up, run like you're 15 points down. And so like, I think that there are very good signs of life for Democrats doing very well you know, on the strength of Democratic candidates, but also on the significant weakness and weirdness and just out of their mindedness, if that's a word, of Republican candidates, which Mitch McConnell worried about, you know, as much as a year ago. He saw this in 2010 during the first Tea Party thing, and he's reliving it. And the problem is, is that he is a vestige of a time that is over. Kevin McCarthy is a vestige of a time that is over, and they're both now just holding on for dear life. As you were talking about these low quality candidates, all I could think of is Herschel Walker and his comment about trees, which was referencing the money that was allocated for forestry. And I think he's like, don't we have enough trees? And I was like, I actually researched it. And no, Herschel Walker, we actually do not have enough trees. And it's an important component for actually dealing with climate change. Well, but the thing about a guy like Walker and a guy like Oz and even Blake Masters in Arizona, is these are also fundamentally unserious people. Herschel Walker was a great football player, one of the greatest football players in the history of the University of Georgia, and a longtime NFL star who played many different positions. He is not a United States senator and is probably not going to be one. When he says as early as this morning before we started recording this, Maya, that if he has some sort of mental illness, that that meant Jesus Christ does too, that doesn't make any sense. That's the kind of stuff that comes out of his mouth. Dr. Oz is a walking self-own, right? He's a walking own goal. I mean, he can't help himself. I mean, he thought this was going to be easy. Everybody around him told him this was going to be easy. And then you've got Blake Masters, whose biggest sin is like a really, a truly historic lack of self-awareness, where he really thinks he's like the smartest guy in any room and that he should be senator because Peter Thiel told him so. Yeah. And I feel like the people are actually paying attention. I think part of the beauty of the January 6th committee hearings was that people started to see glimpses of the unseriousness and the criminality of the GOP. And I think it woke a lot of people up and they had to start paying attention and ask, am I being lied to? Maybe I do need to pay attention to these candidates. Gosh, what is Marjorie Taylor Greene doing for me? What are these people doing for my district? And so I'm hoping that's enough to start whittling away at this quote-unquote truth that Donald Trump has created, this alternate reality. I'm hoping it's enough to like start cracking the veneer of that so people can like come back to normalcy. The truth is, is I think it woke up a lot of older Republican voters who don't like the stuff they saw on January 6th. I don't think they like a lot of Republicans' positions on Russia versus Ukraine. And then I think you've seen in places, I believe, like Pennsylvania, where the Dobbs decision on overturning Roe v. Wade has led to a significant uptick in Democratic voter registration, especially among women. And I think it's a reminder, Maya, that, you know, just like Newton, right, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. There's also political physics, which is you overturn Roe v. Wade. There is a reaction to that. 
and you know you have these voter registration laws or these voter laws that they've tried to put in place while it may not happen in the United States Senate it will happen somewhere even naturally and i think you're starting to see that and i think all of this stuff is reminding americans one of the main reasons that the republicans have been able to be in charge is one gerrymandering right drawing their own districts two a non-existent relationship with the truth if you're willing to say anything right you're willing to do anything and then lastly they understood that the reason why they always cared so much about judges and the judiciary is because they knew that many of their core tenets as quote unquote conservatives were broadly unpopular and that the only way to enshrine them in American life was through the judiciary, which once you get to the Supreme Court, there's no appeal function past that, right? So we're stuck with it. And I think that's what you're starting to see is a lot of Americans saying, I don't like that. And I think that there are swing voters, right? It's still very important, probably somewhere between, let's say 10 and 20% of the country they don't like this stuff. They are the arbiter of the country politically. And I think that, you know, we have to continue to talk to them. We have to continue to talk to soft Republicans who, you know, like us, has said enough is enough. You know, somebody said this the other day, skip or flip. If you don't want to vote for the Democrat to flip it, skip it. All I ask you to do is just not vote for the Republican. And we saw that work with Donald Trump. He lost in 2020, as the listeners have heard because of a massive undervote in a lot of places he needed votes and people laid off of him. And I think we need to do that again. And I think we'll see that. All right. So speaking of January 6th, Philip Majors says, I've read the January 6th committee hearings are planned to resume in September. After the lull, will they be able to recapture America's attention like they did for the public hearings earlier this summer? How much will the next round of hearings help Democrats in the midterms? I think the answer is yes, Maya, because my admittedly old-fashioned thinking was if you could make them this riveting during the middle of the summer when theoretically people are not supposed to pay attention when they're out with their kids when they're on vacation then when folks are sitting at home making dinner for their family because you now we got school nights again and i think that they're probably doing what they did in the months leading up to the june and july hearings which is crafting the narrative crafting the story that they want to tell about Donald Trump and his involvement at the middle of this conspiracy. And it was a conspiracy, right? Just because people are idiots doesn't mean they can't commit a conspiracy or take part in one, I should say. I am incredibly excited to see what is revealed and how he loses his mind in the fall because they are coming back at a time when people are poised to watch TV. It's kind of like must-see TV in the fall, all the shows coming back. I feel like the committee is going to come back with that kind of energy because I'm sure they've had so many more witnesses, so many people come forward to reveal even more conclusively that Donald Trump is a criminal. And between what's going on with the DOJ and the January 6th committee, I feel like they have just a treasure trove. If anything, they're probably just inundated trying to go through and see which story is the best story to tell, because there's probably many A, B, C, D, and E storylines that could put this man in a position to never be able to run again or to potentially go to prison. And I am obviously very excited about the latter being a potentiality. And I think that what we saw, you know, going back to our first question about the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, I think that they're taking that seriously, right? That's the first step, as I understand it, in a criminal proceeding by the Department of Justice. I don't think that the attorney general would have signed off on that unless he was prepared for what was likely to happen. And I think that in some ways, the Mar-a-Lago stuff 
Maya very well might have broken the ice on DOJ taking further action against Trump. And we might look back on it and say, you know, it looked bad, you know, looked innocuous. People are saying, oh, you know, you're poking the bear by doing this. This is good for the country. But the truth is, is it was probably a proper and necessary and very savvy first step into the noxious swimming pool of trying to prosecute Donald Trump. One thing about that is because I feel in a way it was really important for the DOJ, for Merrick Garland to call the bluff on the people who were like, oh, if you go after Trump, there's going to be civil war. I know that was a lot of fear that was riding through a lot of people's minds. And I think what happened is there was a couple of days of, you know, all of the message boards going crazy and all of this chatter. And then it kind of died away a little bit. And I think that should further embolden the American public to understand that, hey, this guy's not going to bully us. He's not going to get his followers to bully us into escaping accountability. Like we now see, ah, that little thing that y'all have been talking about, this civil war for the last two years, basically, it's not happening. Well, and let's hope to God not. And let's hope to God that as we get deeper into this midterm and Trump will be out and about more and fevers will get high and tensions will rise, that there isn't an outbreak of violence you know, that as we've talked about, starting with January 6th and these things, very hard to put that genie back in the bottle once it gets out. But as an adjunct to Philip's question, Clara Kaufman asks, we're now in the last several months of the 117th Congress. What is next for Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger after they are no longer members of the House? Well, Kinzinger was drawn out of his district, so he wasn't running for reelection anyway. And Cheney just lost her primary in Wyoming last week. So now, they got all the time in the world to do nothing but spend time on this. And I think because of their unique position, not only as the only Republicans on the committee, but also as two Republicans who sacrificed their political careers or their current political careers, I should say, there will be a lot of notice. There will be a ton of media coverage around both of them. I think probably Cheney a little bit more. She obviously has a famous family. And she has been outspoken on Trump for several years now. And I think Kinzinger has a way of really getting under the skin of Republicans. And so what happens after they leave the House? I'm not sure yet. They frankly hope they're taking some time off. These are not questions that have to get answered today or tomorrow. I'm sure that there are many folks around them, all in good faith, probably desperately scribbling out plans and memos for them to review. But the truth is, is that we got, what, 80 some days until Election Day, 70 some days now. And so I would say that they should be as sharp as they possibly can be for these hearings in September. If they stretch into October, even better. Liz Cheney said that she will use her platform and her resources to take on election denying pro-Trump candidates. I think that is an enormous thing. That also gives her a level of freedom. And I think Kinzinger, too, which is, you know, after was a January 3rd, like they're done. Right. Then I think there's probably an incredible amount of freedom, both emotionally and psychologically and on the calendar for them to spend time this fall really staking out for other Republicans and conservatives. And when I say conservative, I mean old style conservatives, not whatever the Republican Party has become now to say you don't have to put up with this. Yeah. Them having political futures that are brighter than the political present of the Republican Party, I think, is what's going to inspire even more Republicans. So. Their bright future is a win for all of America because we need more people to leave that insanity behind. And I am very much looking forward to how good they're going to be on the January 6th committee in the fall as well, because they have zero Fs left to give. Right. And as I think you saw in the last hearing, 
before they went on recess, just how willing both Cheney and Kinzinger were to humiliate their former colleagues or their soon-to-be former colleagues, both in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. Notably, Josh Hawley, he being a track star, you know, being the fist-pumping macho man in one regard and then literally jogging for his life the next as he realized that something bad was about to happen. And look, a lot of this, as you talk about with Trigby every week, is based in fear and the cowardice that that fear exposes in so many of these people. All right. Susan DeRosa asks, how important is the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act when it comes to convincing voters that a Democratic-controlled Congress can overcome gridlock and get things passed? What sort of benefit will this provide for Democratic candidates in the midterms, if any? Well, Maya, I think that this has the ability to give Democratic candidates a lot to run on from a policy perspective, but I, I see it as more important thinking back to like, and I might have said this on a previous episode, thinking back to like Franklin Roosevelt. And the reason why the New Deal was important was not only because it attempted to provide relief for a country that had 25% unemployment, right? But it proved that the democratic system, small d democratic system of government could work in a time when in Russia, communism was on the march. And at a time when in Italy, Spain, and Germany, fascism was on the march, authoritarianism was on the march, the democratic government could work and work for the people. And I think that that's what something like the Inflation Reduction Act does for President Biden. And I think it sort of opens some doors in the minds of otherwise sort of dispirited democratic voters, Maya, that they got infrastructure done in November. And it was like, oh, okay, great. And then Joe Biden single-handedly reformed the NATO alliance and got it to stand tall before the Russian bear when it started rolling into Ukraine and has continued to supply Ukraine with missiles and money. And to say that the Ukrainians have fought them to a standstill is an insult to what the Ukrainians have done. They are putting massive dents in Russia's military capability. And we now start to see that they're taking shots inside of Russia or Russia-controlled territory. And now you see we've got the IRA done. And so I think that it is an important thing, not only for Democratic candidates to be able to run on, but I think also for the idea that, yes, government can work. And, oh, it almost appears normal. And I think it was an important marker for Democrats, big D Democrats, to realize getting everything you want at one time is unrealistic. And there's a reason why the trope is politics is the art of the possible, not the art of everything you want all the time. And I think that it was an important thing for the Joe Manchins of the world to finally get something they could work with for the Kristen Cinemas of the world, as much as it might make you crazy that she gave up carried interest. I get it, but she's got somebody on the hook and she had to do that for them, but it got the deal done. There's a reason why sausage making is not something any of us want to see, Maya. Yeah, I think for a lot of my friends who follow politics, average folks who maybe don't, I think the passage of this act, but also of like the CHIPS Act and so many things that have been done have shown that it's completely possible. And I think it's so impressive that Biden has just been able to be chill. Like everybody talks about dark Biden, but to me, it's chill Biden because he's been able to keep himself from being 
pulled into the fray in ways that I think other leaders would not be able to do. So instead of being pulled into the fray of the craziness of the demands from the GOP, he's just steadily gotten things done. And I think that is incredibly impressive to almost any American at this point, because we all know the urge to be pulled into these ridiculous fights that actually don't move America forward, that are just ego driven and about us arguing. We all know how easy it is to want to tell somebody to shut up. And I think the fact is he managed to avoid any of that this year and has just been incredibly focused on getting things done for the average American and just being very chill about it when he does. He's letting other people in other organizations talk about his accomplishments in, you know, this grandiose way. But he is being very like doing this, doing this, doing that, and I'm done. And I, I want to say that Chuck Schumer has found his inner Harry Reid in that, you know, he got the CHIPS Act done. He got IRA done. He got the PACT Act with the burn pits and the military done. And they were either bipartisan or he put Republicans so far on the wrong side of an issue that they could kick and scream all they wanted. But then, you know, when the parliamentarian says, Mr. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, I, because they weren't going to vote against veterans benefits in an election year. Right. But that and the January 6th hearings, Maya, are what Trigvi would call using the power you have. Yeah, his rules of dealing with autocrats have been used very well. I would like to think that Biden's reading Trigvi's Twitter (laughs) and using the information there to fight autocrats. Well, I hope somebody is because we'd all be better off for it. Okay, at Urakman on Twitter asks, would across the board open versus closed primaries help strengthen democracy? All right, well, I'm going to go full nerd here, Maya. Yes is the answer. Open primaries would help democracy. But the question is, what kind of open primary? So you could have what California and Washington state have, which is what they call jungle primaries, right? Which is everybody, multiple candidates from multiple parties, some of the same party run, but only the top two finishers in a primary election go on to the general. So there are some districts in California that have two Republicans and two Democrats running against each other because they're so heavily tilted towards one side or the other. Generally speaking, does that allow moderate voters, less ideological voters to have a choice? theoretically, but it doesn't always work out that way. You know, there's some talk, well, maybe it should be a top four primary in which the top four vote getters move forward. So you could have multiple Republicans, multiple Democrats, and then, you know, the two, quote unquote, more moderate candidates are facing off as the beloved of the partisans are trying to drag their people so far to one side or the other that it allows the two, quote unquote, normals, right, the two normal candidates to really have a chance. Then you get into ranked choice voting and all this other stuff. So my point is, yes, I think that open primaries are a better way to go, because remember that the electoral system in nearly all 50 states, Maya, is one, an incumbent protection racket, but not far behind, maybe 1A, a major party protection racket. Neither Republicans nor Democrats want any more competition. It's been their thing for 160 years, you know, for the last 70 or 80 years when they started to put these rules in place. And they do not want other people getting in on their deal. And I have to say, like, as the layperson here, you know, I'm just a constituent, a voter. This is, you know, and a comedian, of course, and a Peloton enthusiast, that too. But 
I have to say, it sounds like it would make it a lot easier for people to follow politics, to engage civically if there's just this open primary, because you can kind of hear what the different candidates are saying on, quote unquote, the different sides or the same sides or in the middle. But it gives an opportunity for there to be one place to get one's information from in a way that hopefully wouldn't be skewed because Right now, I think people are only paying attention to candidates that are in their own party and are missing what's happening in the other party. And sometimes I need people to see what's happening in the craziness on the Republican side. Like I mentioned some candidates and friends are like, who is that? And I'm like, how do you not know who that is? (laughs) I'm like, this person's dangerous if you're not paying attention. And so by having it all in one, it would make it easier for people to actually pay attention to the good candidates and the bad candidates. Right, exactly. So, yes to open primaries. Remember, all 50 states have their own rules. There are some places that are working towards these things. Maine has got some stuff like that. Alaska has some stuff like that now. But that's four out of 50. So a lot of work left to be done. All right. Maya, at Remote Pacific on Twitter asks, what is going on at CNN? Whew. Well, that is a loaded question. What's going on at CNN is this, is that CNN got wrapped up in the Discovery Warner Media merger, right? So the Discovery Channel, Shark Week, the Deadliest Catch, Animal Shows, right? All that stuff. And then Warner Media, CNN, Time Warner, lots of movies, lots of TV shows, all that kind of stuff. And CNN was a part of Time Warner before all of this. The bottom line is that they all got spun into this Warner Discovery Times thing, whatever they're calling it. But the people who run that new company believe that many of CNN's on-air personalities have gone out of their way to poke Trump in the eye, to poke Republicans in the eye, that they have become not straight news people, but Democrats. And, you know, Chris Licht, who runs CNN now, just recently fired Brian Stetler, who hosted Reliable Sources, the media show, because he was probably liberal, fine, whatever. But I think, Maya, this is where we really get into trouble, which is we want to show both sides. Well, both sides work when both sides are, one, having the same conversation, and two, both sides are going out of their way to be honest with viewers or their voters, and three, that both sides fundamentally believe in the democratic system. One of those does not happen now. And so what I think is going on at CNN, in my most cynical mind, Maya, is that Chris Licht and these guys are trying to court Republican viewers and Trump voters so they can get an extra like 5,000 viewers a day. It's not even like they're trying to grow millions of people. They want to go from like 75,000 people an hour to like 85,000 people an hour. And so I think that they have become exactly what this country does not need right now, which is that, you know, they say they want to be quote unquote down the middle. Well, fine. But down the middle doesn't mean that you believe liars and that you allow them to occupy your airtime. Yeah, platforming lies is not the way to go. And my take on this read is far more cynical than yours. I actually asked today, I was like, have they just chosen the wrong side? Have they decided they're going to vote against democracy? Because it feels like they had some analyst locked in a room somewhere who was like, you know what? We think the Republicans are actually going to pull this out and we want to make sure that we're hearing both sides. It just feels like such a 
dangerous move. It's like, did they learn anything from when Trump took over the Republican Party? Do they somehow think that they're going to be able to keep lies from taking over their network? And so my cynical take on it is like it was a bold business decision. And I think it's going to be the bad one. It's the wrong decision. Well, a couple of things. One, remember that before he left, either voluntarily or involuntarily, Jeff Zucker, who ran CNN for many years, was the guy who famously left a 30-minute shot of an airport tarmac waiting for Trump to arrive in 2015. He went out of his way to make sure that Trump got as much airtime as he could and then you know, put the Michael Avenatti's of the world on air for months on end because they knew that Trump was good ratings. Now they think that Trump is good ratings, but they want to put some sort of patina of journalistic integrity on it, which is impossible. But to your point, too, I was reading this this morning, I think, in Puck or one of the other media newsletters. The thing I don't understand from an economic perspective is that CNN was like the only profitable piece of the thing to begin with, which is it's clearing like a billion dollars a year. So it's already paying for itself, more than paying for itself. All the other shit that they took on was like $55 billion in debt. So the thing you're going to do, just so I'm clear, as a non-MBA business guy, is go screw with the one thing that does make you money. I think they're probably going to get the result they don't want. But a lot of these masters of the universe types, my, you know, they see things quarterly or maybe they just don't care, too. That's also entirely possible. OK, let's finish up on someone that we both have a special feeling for. Let's call it that. So, Maya, our next question comes from Philip Hanft. He said, I don't get why some people think Ron DeSantis is preferable to Trump, in my opinion. He is more overtly authoritarian than Trump and more dangerous because he is leaps and bounds smarter. What do you think? Maya, why don't you go first? Because I could take the next hour on this. Yeah, well, so could I. Every time I hear Ron DeSantis speak or Ron DeSantis push forward legislation that is completely damaging to his constituents, but he seems to be able to, with a straight face, wrap it up in some sort of narrative where it's about protecting people and about protecting his constituents, I actually get viscerally upset. Like this man actually makes me want to vomit because he is so dangerous. He is so sinister. And yeah, he's leaps and bounds smarter, but that doesn't really take all of that much to be smarter than Trump. But what most concerns me is that because he is testing out all of these different laws to repress people and see how they respond to it, if he does get anywhere near the presidency, he's already going to have had the exercise of working against people's rebuttals. So he's already going to know, well, if we try to take away incentives for a company as punishment, well, they're going to come at us with this response and that response. And so it's almost like he's practicing and going to have this skill set at being an autocrat that he's going to be able to roll out nationwide, which is why I think he's so dangerous. I think that he brings the patina of normalcy to a lot of Republican voters, donors, elites, simply because his name isn't Donald Trump, because he did go to Yale, because he did serve as a JAG officer in the military, and we'll get to that in a second. But you're absolutely right, which is the things he's doing now are a practice run. Just like January 6th was a practice run for a coup, if no one is held accountable, what Ron DeSantis is doing is preparing for a time in the White House, in the presidency, where he will say and do things in the name of the people, 
just like Donald Trump does. And I would venture to say that they're similar in that respect, too, which is the more that Ron DeSantis says something is defending children, protecting parents' rights, protecting Floridians, you can almost bet that it does the opposite of those things. And he doesn't care. And the legislature in Tallahassee, just like Congress for Trump, has completely rolled over. He is much better attuned, I think, to your point about the levers and the mechanisms of government than Trump and his people ever were, because no one who really understood that world was, frankly, ever really willing to work with him. There were people who figured it out as they went along, and they were getting better at it when he lost. And if Trump or DeSantis were to retake the White House, or to take the White House, I should say, then they would both be prepared to radically shift the United States government in a way that would hold up the rights of the few against the wishes of the many, and they would do it without compunction. I think we're ahead of ourselves a little bit, though, because as I've said previously, DeSantis has not yet been tested on a national level. Now, I think it's interesting, but not surprising, that DeSantis is currently running ads, including this top gov ad that we'll discuss in a second, in places like Ohio. Now, he's doing that because he understands that he's got like 50 or $60 million in campaign cash in Florida. But my, he can't use that money for a presidential campaign. So they're going to use whatever they think they need to in Florida right now to ensure his reelection. But at the same time, they got to spend it on all sorts of different stuff just to get it out the door because they'll have to restart the process of raising money for a federal campaign if and when he decides to run for president. But I am not at all convinced that he can beat Trump except in a one-on-one -on -one contest, which at this moment in time, he's not going to get. Well, true. But what's really concerning to me is, you know, he's branding himself right now. He's using that money to brand himself throughout the nation as like the conservative nice guy as opposed to the conservative Trump guy. Like, I know plenty of people who think Ron DeSantis isn't that bad. You've got Elon Musk coming out for you know Ron DeSantis, which, you know, anytime you have Elon Musk and Joe Rogan saying, hey, this is the guy, you can have a bunch of bros come behind him. So, Maya, let's continue the Ron DeSantis exploration. Our last question of the day, it comes from Michelle Ashby, and she asks, I don't know how to process the new Ron DeSantis Top Gun spoof thing. Maybe you all can help. Well, you know, if you haven't seen it, maybe, Rob, we can put the link to it in the show notes. But basically, Maya, it's a minute of Ron DeSantis strapping on like flight boots zipping himself into like a sausage casing flight suit because he's pretty tubby, wearing a flight helmet that is about to crack because of the size of his bulbous melon. And there's already been a million memes of like him in this helmet next to Michael Dukakis in the tank from 1988. But like he served in the Navy, but as a jag off, literally like a jag officer, but he is a jag off. Yeah. He is a jagoff, exactly. Double meaning there. Yeah, a judge advocate general. He's a lawyer. He was a lawyer in the Navy. If he was on a Navy airplane, he certainly wasn't flying it. And if he was in the cockpit, it was because some pilot said, yeah, go ahead and sit up here and take a look at it. But this is not Adam Kinzinger, who actually flew tankers and then flew spy planes. This is not Mark Kelly, who, you know, is a freaking astronaut. It's not John McCain. This guy literally, the closest he's ever come from flying in an airplane is sitting in first class. And yet here he is pretending like he's Tom Cruise in an F-18. And it's absolutely ridiculous. 
and I just I have to say this. There was probably a screening of Top Gun Maverick, which I have seen and I absolutely loved. Same. I cried. Every bit of my 1986 boyhood dream of being an F-14 pilot came rushing back. I was crying. My wife was crying. Everyone's crying. So they're watching this either in a movie theater they rented out or in the governor's mansion. And they go, Governor, you are the maverick of your generation. And he's like, yeah, I am. And Mrs. DeSantis is like, oh, does that make me Penny Benjamin? <laughs> right? And they're like, we should do this ad, right? We can do this. And everybody's like, yes, 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 yes. And it's the exact kind of thing that happens in a political organization with a candidate who feels way, way, way too good about themselves. Like the only thing that was missing from this ad was Ron DeSantis literally jumping over a shark. I was going to say, or the running on the beach scene, but he wouldn't dare do that. The volleyball scene or the running on the beach scene. He'd be the guy in the T-shirt, right? The guy in the white T-shirt, because he'd think that that looked better than his tubbiness hanging out. There was also a picture of him standing next to Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania at a rally last week where he's wearing a suit and the button is dying. You can hear it screaming because it is so desperately trying to hold on for dear life. And had it gone, it would have killed someone. He didn't just pick like Top Gun, like a pilot. It's like the Maverick. Like the level of arrogance that that must take, but also as somebody who is former military, he's saying like, I'm top gov, meaning what I say goes like, this is the kind of state that I am creating. It is military. I've got my own election police now. And what I say goes. And if you can't be subordinate to what I say, then you might as well just leave the state. I feel like he's already said that to his teachers. And so in a way, also to his constituents, because if people don't fall in line, it's just he's creating this toxic environment that makes people very much want to leave. And if they were going to parody any movie, I would think it would need to be American Psycho, because I very much see him more as a Patrick Bateman type than a Maverick type. Yeah, Patrick Bateman worked out way more. <laughs> he's Patrick Bateman, like if Patrick Bateman like retired one day. Right. And ate cheeseburgers and milkshakes. Yeah. And we listen, I mean, I know that there's a whole idea that like you shouldn't shame people for their bodies. But one, he holds himself up to be this alpha male like so many of them do. And they're all either tubby or super skinny. Right. Like none of them actually appear to be in some normal physical condition. Can I speak to that? Because I don't believe in body shaming either. But to that point, because even today when I think it was Fred who posted the clip of the, maybe it was a father at a school board meeting and he was in the red shirt and he was screaming about masculinity and trans people and all this. And I was in the gym doing bicep curls, watching this angry man scream. And I couldn't help myself. I was like, you know, maybe you should do with your rage what I do with mine and actually work out instead of using it to weaponize your voice against school boards, against children, against people who are just trying to live their lives. And so what I see with a lot of these MAGA types is rather than just being accountable for their own actions and accountable for you know the lives that they want to lead, they just go out everywhere and like, trash everybody else. And so to me, it's not really about body shaming, it's life shaming. Well, also, we know that Tater, which was his nickname when he was at Yale, and his wife, Casey DeSantis, are very sensitive about his physique. They tried to get him to lose a bunch of weight. He's clearly put it back on. But Trump was the first one who mentioned this and has made reference to it. So it'll be interesting to see if they make him hit the gym again here before long. But I think about the guy in the red shirt who was also pornographic. 
literally pornographic at the end of his remarks in that school board thing, which is these guys all remind me of that Seinfeld episode, Maya, where George Costanza is at the birthday party and there's a fire and he pushes an old woman and kids out of the way to escape. Right. That's what they all are. Like they would all push old ladies and kids out of the way to save themselves. And literally they do it every day. That's who they are. They are George Costanza, that level of like not only self-loathing, but unwillingness to accept anything around you as important other than yourself, I think is a good explanation of who these people are at heart. Facts. All right. Well, Maya, before we let you get out of here, where can the crew find you on social media, on Peloton, on the road if you are? I am at Maya on stage on all social media, including Peloton. I even use the hashtag Lincoln Project because I'm hoping to pedal with somebody at some point. So I'm hoping for that. But you can also find me on Twitter where I'm now just posting rant videos every now and again. And I'm doing comedy again. I had taken a break. I'm back out on the road. I'm going to Brandeis this Friday. Great. Well, if you happen to be in the Brandeis neighborhood, buy some tickets. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Don't forget to email us podcast at lincolnproject.us. Maya, as always, thanks for joining me and everybody else out there. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.